Yeah. It's not like you had followed Colgate before, you know, very recently. How I mean, dare you, I'm Sarah? Sorry. No, I'm joking. Speak for yourself, <laughs> Sarah. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is March 23rd, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Oh, you know, loving loving the madness. <laughs> well, you're pretty high up in our bracket pool at work. I am not. So that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry to hear that. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? How are, Dude, you, what, are you in first place? I'm not. I was. And then I had a, a couple of hiccups yesterday. I believe I still have the most points available to me overall. So I, I'm, feel, I'm feeling pretty good about it. How, um, how many Final Four teams do you have left? All of them. Well, that's impressive. Yeah, because I, I picked Illinois to lose, and I picked Ohio State to lose. I picked the I correctly picked Loyola to beat Illinois. That's my crown my, jewel. Yeah, my crowning achievement of this bracket. I stuck with it in the face of feeling like I was making a very stupid mistake, and I did it. It probably was a mistake, but it no, worked. I don't so. think so. No, <laughs> that was, was smart. They're good. They are good. I think they, you know, they have a pretty good chance to to make the Final Four now. Do we have the same Final Four, Sarah? Because I haven't lost any of mine yet. Yet, those are the only teams that I have active, I think, still. Yeah, the thing R. that I... R.I.P. Colgate. <laughs> the thing that I did was, I initially, when we talked, I had Oklahoma State in my uh, Final Four. And then I Ooh. read the story that we wrote <laughs> on Friday that talked about, like, teams at different seed lines like historically underperforming and Oklahoma State looked like a team that might do that and I was like never mind and so I quick took them out and uh and took uh Houston in that region so you know it was a last minute a last minute change that I think was maybe smart. I think the last minute changes are good when you come across that one did lead me astray because I switched my Abilene Christian over Texas pick at the last second but then that uh the the vulnerable top seed story written by uh Santul Nerkar our uh our friend uh and great copy editor he um he also identified Iowa as a team that was way too weak defensively well guess what Iowa lost no way. You don't say. <laughs> Sarah, you loved you, that, Sarah. I, I liked that. Did you have that in your bracket? Did you have Iowa losing this early? No, not this early. Um, I like I I usually can't pull the trigger on those upsets that early, but I don't I didn't have them. I had them losing to to um Gonzaga. Um I did, however, have Kansas losing to USC because we I had, had written that too. A, we had written about USC a little earlier in the season, so I was all I was all about them. And Kansas was one of the weak, uh, weak top seeds too. Yeah, you know it shows how no one knows anything, including us. We're not alone in not knowing anything because because you just look at uh, everyone was saying that the East Michigan's uh, region was going to be the one with all the chaos, and you know Texas lost Abilene Christian, but besides for that, it's actually the kind of the chalkiest region currently that's the 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 beauty of of the madness right you never you never know exactly how unless you picked loyola over illinois like i did <laughs> unless you picked saint bonaventure over michigan which a wasn't a game that existed <laughs> or b say. correct <laughs> jeff did you pick that I did, but part of that's kind of emotional hedging. Oh, my know? God. You picked St. Bonaventure <laughs> over Michigan. Neil, that is Neil, 
Neil, you know what I'm talking about with emotional uh, hedging. Yeah, you're anti-rooting or you're sort of like bracing yourself. Yeah. I'm sort of like, um, no, I'm just sort of like then. You're anti-jinxing. No, 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 no. So if Michigan were to lose to St. Bonaventure, which, you know, it never happened that game. But <laughs> they could have lost I, to LSU. It was close for a while. That's what I'm saying. Let's say I'd taken LSU. Then I could have been like, oh, this is terrible. I'm so disappointed. But Silver let me lining. just check the old bracket. Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I got that right. Classic emotional hedging. All right. On today's show, we'll talk about the NCAA and its relationship with the women's basketball tournament and its disparate treatment of male and female athletes. Then we'll get into the games, looking at the big upsets so far and the Cinderella's making a run. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Now that the NCAA tournaments are fully underway, we wanted to talk about something that's been happening on, honestly for a long time. This year, videos of the differences in facilities and amenities between the men's and women's tournament sites went viral, and there was a huge outcry on social media about the NCAA shortchanging its female athletes. The NCAA initially blamed the discrepancy in the weight facilities on a lack of space, and then when a video emerged showing that there was, in fact, plenty of space, they finally apologized for just, you know, screwing up. They upgraded the women's weight room overnight. On ESPN's Basketball Bonanza, Harry Lyles talked about how things feel now that the NCAA has made its apologies. You know, honestly, it's just sad. I mean, at this point, you know, like there have been amazing strides especially in recent memory the past few years where people are trying to make the necessary strides in order to bring women's basketball in particular uh you know to a level where we treat it the same as men's basketball mm -hmm. and you know the ncaa <laughs> i think a lot of us would say that they don't do a whole lot right but i mean you look at this and it's just flagrant at this point i mean like it's it's just sad that to see the pictures and for them to try to say well you know it's an honest mistake and then you see the, all the extra space that they actually had um, it's honestly disheartening. If you're a sports fan, you should be upset about this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know there hasn't been a ton of them, but if you're one of these keyboard warriors who are saying, well, the women don't need all those weights anyways, the women that are using those weights could kick your butt. So, like, <laughs> let's, let's, let's advance this, right? Let's, let's, let's make the necessary changes. Everybody's equal. We all love sports, right? So, like, let's treat everybody fair. So the NCAA's attempt to deflect blame off themselves and onto, I don't know, the state of Texas for not having enough space. State of Texas is kind of an easy punching bag, right? You know, <laughs> these days, but sure, yeah. not really for having space or not, though. They pretty have a famously lot of space. large, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that was obviously pretty pretty boneheaded, and I I don't I don't think it'll come as a huge surprise to find that none of us thinks the NCAA is in the right here. <laughs> but let's play devil's advocate for just a second. What possible justification could they have for treating their male and female athletes so differently? Maybe one of the things that I've seen people on Twitter saying is the idea that women's basketball makes less revenue, I guess, than men's basketball. And so that uh, could be one of the ways that they explain it. Although it's a little interesting that the NCAA, I mean, it just it's another case of hypocrisy for the NCAA because they're not supposed to be about, you know, making money or making profits or whatever or giving different opportunities based on that, uh, according to their great amateur 
athletics uh, mission statement. And of course, that's a lie. We know that's a lie. And we know that there are a lot of decisions are made on the basis of which sports make revenue and, and, and make more or less revenue to the point that they call certain sports non-revenue generating sports and then <laughs> cut them in the middle of a pandemic. But maybe that is goes into the rationale. But I don't know. I don't want to have to defend the NCAA here uh, for what they did. Yeah, no, I don't think there is a defense, to be honest. Uh, obviously, one, if they were wanted to make this argument, which I think is incredibly flawed, could point to the fact that the men's tournament will make them $850 million and the women's tournament will make them $42 million and say it's it's just pure capitalism. But first of all, as you said, that doesn't make any sense when you're not paying the players. Right. You're, you're basically your product are doing it pro bono. So you can't say it's a purely money decision. Second of all, it's not even good capitalism because we see capitalism all the time. Small businesses, you know, startup websites, startup businesses that don't have a huge amount of revenue and uh, a huge amount of reach. And what do they do? They pour money into it to grow it. So like, if you really, really wanted to make money, you would bolster the women's tournament. You would try to get that, try to narrow that, that margin, try to get it up closer to that $850 million. If this was a purely capitalistic endeavor. So it's like not even good capitalism because you're just basically sandbagging half of your product in March for no reason. Well, and what was so what was really interesting to me is that like the weight room was what kicked off, you know, this backlash and and that that was it was just so obviously ridiculous, right? But there were so there are and there continue to be so many things where it's like, wow, you don't care about this tournament. The the food options were different. The swag bags were noticeably yeah. different. The women got scrunchies in their in their in their swag bags. I know. That's like that's just silly and not understanding. You yeah. know, I'm surprised they didn't give slap bracelets. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's also that's like so demeaning. Also, when you think about it, it's, <laughs> it's like terrible. some dude it's at terrible. the at the NCAA yeah. was like, "What a what a little girls like? Oh, they like scrunchies." <sighs> Maybe if we threw a Tamagotchi in there for them, maybe they would like that. <laughs> the, Do they I, still yeah. like Tamagotchis? <laughs> it's a good question. I don't think so. If the NCAA gave, uh, <laughs> had the option to give those out, they would, though. Yeah. This one I thought was interesting. The NCAA media site had yeah. press conference transcripts and photos from the first two rounds for the men but those aren't available for the women until the Sweet 16. They say they don't have the staff and budget to take photos of all the women's game, which seems insane. Like, hi, you're <laughs> you're the NCAA. I can't imagine that unpaid interns are beneath you. You know there are students <laughs> going to your schools, right? But also, your like, whole program is based on unpaid yeah, interns, I, essentially. I feel like you're good at that. Um, but also, like the transcripts of the press conferences, you couldn't make available. That's terrible. That, that is wild. And so it's just much harder than that makes it harder for everyone else to cover it. Also, and this is, I think, goes back to Title IX, too. The types of COVID tests were yeah. different. The men getting the more accurate PCR tests, the women getting the antigen tests. So they, they, literally, they literally care less, though, about being correct, about yeah, getting right. getting the results right. On COVID-19, which is kind of a big deal, the reason we're having these tournaments in a bubble in the first place. That decision was just wild. How did that decision get made differently for the men and women? Do they really not have someone who's who thinks about whether they're 
their athletes are being treated differently. I can't imagine that, but apparently that is the case. <laughs> and, and, you know, just to go back, you know, I was talking about sandbagging before, and that's exactly what I'm talking about is the, the thing with the media site, which to me in many ways is, well, they're all egregious, but that one I think is particularly egregious because that means they're actively not trying to promote the sport, which doesn't make any sense. And this is, again, like the weight room. They kept saying, oh, we'll do this in the Sweet 16. Oh, we'll put the weight room in in the Sweet 16. Why Why are you even having a tournament this size if, if that's your mentality? And yeah, also just have a 16-team tournament. <laughs> and also they put media media transcripts and, and photos on their, on their uh, you know, the paywall site. Uh, for the Mount St. Mary's Texas Southern first four game, no one cared about that game. <laughs> right. Uh, and you don't put it up for the UConn women. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, Michigan was playing one of those teams, and I didn't even care about that game. <laughs> I mean, that that game was so far down the packing order. It doesn't even make sense. Um, and yet, and then the thing with the with the COVID tests is just money. They're just cheaper tests. I mean, that's transparent. And again, another one of these things where like they're terrible at diffusing these controversies by saying these things and just making this sort of scandal grow even more by saying, "Oh, there's no space," and then having the the Oregon player tweet a giant empty convention room with plenty right. of space and the tiny weight rack right next to that empty room. Or saying, I believe it was Emirate who said, I was told the safety is the same on the two tests when everyone knows we've been in the pandemic for a year. We've all gotten tests. We know that's a better test. Like, why are you trying to, like, lie to us on that? Like, you're not going to get away with that. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, that pulls back the curtain on, (laughs) I'm pretty sure this has been, like, the NCAA's go-to strategy for, like, forever, except now there's the ability to actually fact check it and be like, you're literally lying. Uh, whereas in the past, think about all the stuff that they lied about that we couldn't have checked before uh, the social media era. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is this is the first tournament when all women's games will actually be televised in their entirety. That's that kind of shocking. Wild in the year 2021. They've done regional coverage. They've done that. Oh, that terrible whip around coverage where you can't really watch any game. Uh, show the games. That's that's pretty easy. I, don't, I I keep going back to my school, which is obviously the program I know best, but it's also been incredibly successful at growing the women's game. My freshman year at Iowa State, they gave away tickets to students. You know, you could just walk in. And I went, my friends and I went that season, their average attendance was 1,688 people. They were building a good team, but more importantly, they were really selling the program. They, they, like they're, they're, they had their athletes out on the concourse signing autographs. They really marketed to families. By the time I graduated, they were averaging that season 11,370 people. Over 10,000 fans. And in the subsequent 20 years, they've seen just under 10,000 fans per game every single year. Like, up years, down years. This is not a national program. They've never won a title. They've never reached the Final Four. They've only made the Elite Eight twice. But the program is treated by the university as real and important and equal to the men's team. They promote the crap out of it, and it makes a difference. It makes a difference in fans it makes a difference in money. You can grow the game if you care. It's pretty obvious. I mean, there's nothing magical about Iowa State. I mean, there is, obviously, but not in terms of that. They they just put in the work. You know, when you think about March Madness, nobody 
people who care about basketball at this time of year largely do not earlier in the year. We know that based on, you know, ratings, based on traffic to college basketball stories, people aren't like, you know, watching some, you know, random Pac-12 game in January. And and actually, we know that for sure this year because no one picked the Pac-12 to do very well <laughs> and because nobody watched no, their games. <laughs> no one even knew the Pac-12 was playing basketball. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but people pay attention to the men's tournament in March because... It's culturally a big deal. Right. How about the culture of, of filling out office bracket pools, yeah. you know, probably has done more to internalize that that need to follow men's uh, yeah. NCAA. It's not anything. like you had followed Colgate before, you know, very recently. How I mean, dare you, I'm Sarah. sorry. No, I'm <laughs> yourself, Sarah. Right. But like, that's the thing. It's not like, oh, yes, I'm a, I've always been a fan of these. I'm a long time Colgate fan. Yeah. Yeah. And Abilene Christian. But like the marketing apparatus of the NCAA and its advertising partners have told you to care right now. And so you care. So it's not that like. Well, I just prefer the style of the men's game, so I'm going to watch that instead of the women's. That's nonsense! You don't care about the style of those games. You don't care about dunks that much. You really, you don't. You care about the marketing. You are told to care, and so you do. And if that kind of energy was put into the women's game, I think you would see people care. I mean, I know that in our office, having both the men's bracket and the women's bracket, people signed up. People do both. And it's then a big deal to follow both. It's like one easy change that makes a difference in how people think about it, how people care about it. It's just, it's not that hard to put in some effort to market, to market your sport. I think that's true. And you know, like just looking around for like upset predictions, bracket buster predictions, final four predictions for the women's tournament. There's very little out there. It's very... How about, uh, it's, how about injury reports? I can't even find injury an injury reports. report. It's very yeah. underreported. And and the look, I, I do believe this has trickled down. I mean, like, that's why I keep going back to that media, the media site part of this controversy, which I, I, I do think is the most significant because I do think this comes down from the top. It comes down from how much the NCAA is out there pushing it, pushing for coverage and pushing for attention and, and, and planting this stuff. You know, this is this is how you do this in, in business in America. Like if you want to get your product written about, you can do that. But yeah. you have to go on the offensive a little bit more. Well, I think also one way is maybe for lawmakers to step in and start challenging the kind of nonprofit tax exempt status of something like the NCAA uh, or enforcing Title IX in a more kind of comprehensive way to get at some of these soft, you know, gaps in, uh, you know, where you can say, oh, well, we have an equal number of scholarships, but then kind of funnel money more. And we should say the impulse, uh, and this is one of the criticisms of Title IX, which I think is supported by data to a certain extent, is that it has resulted in, uh, instead of giving more opportunities to women, it's resulted in pulling the plug on men's sports to be able to say that they're equal. So I think some of, you know, enforcing or, or adding some aspect, I mean, you can't, you know, it's it's a tough thing because you can't tell, especially in a pandemic a budget situation you know you can't force universities to spend although for public ones you probably could exert some kind of influence over that yeah i think the i think that's a great point and i think the other legal avenue here that will make a difference 
is the um, name, image, and likeness laws that, I mean, that's, you know, actually Sedona Prince, who was the, the organ player who who took the video of the, the weight room space, she's part of a lawsuit against the NCAA to be able to use your name, image, and likeness um, rights. She was, she had, she had gotten hurt. She wasn't able to play. She had racked up all these medical bills that her previous school didn't pay for. And she was had a huge following on on Instagram, could have made money that way if she had had her own um, the rights to her own image, which she didn't have as a basketball player. And, And so that kind of stuff will make a difference, too, in how the players have power, but also like. These players are super popular. I mean, she had a huge, she has a huge following on Instagram and TikTok. Paige Beckers, we looked at this last summer at, at, you know, the biggest um, college athletes who had the biggest uh, social media following. And before Paige Beckers even started at UConn, she had this like explosive media following that she could have, she could be monetizing. Yeah. And this goes to the long running trend of the NCAA kind of trying to i mean i guess they're historically a very conservative reactionary kind of organization that stands astride progress instead of trying to kind of work with it and and see where things are going and this is a great example you know of them not working with the athletes to try to kind of grow the sport together and and make them actual partners in it but instead like intentionally sabotaging that and and making things worse it's just such a weird backwards mindset but i think it speaks to the whole ncaa mindset uh, of we're in charge and the athletes are you know just incidental to the product and i think you know more and more of the the younger generation of players are sort of saying screw that you know uh, like you said they have followings on tiktok they they can kind of uh monetize themselves if they were allowed to and that's like a big brewing conflict on top of all the other conflicts between athletes and the ncaa going forward absolutely so as for the actual basketball which you know obviously we wish we could just talk about that we didn't have to talk about all these other um all this other nonsense but there have been some really great games, including a couple of upsets. Uh, I think this is the first year for the women that uh, a 13, a 12, and 11 all made the second round, which is sort of fun. I mean, again, we're seeing more parody in the women's game. So most notably, number 13, Wright State, beat number four, Arkansas, in a wild game. So... 538 has an excitement index that we put on on our little game cards on our interactive. The excitement index for that game was 11. I thought it stopped at 10. I was like, how did it get to 11? Is that just a, did it just change just for this game? It was like, let's dial it up to 11, folks. It was amazing. <laughs> also Monday night, number two, Texas A&M, one of, one of my final four picks, very nearly got upset by number 15, Troy. That that game included more than one uh, questionable call down the stretch, including something that definitely seems like over the back to me. Um, that was a great, a great finish. The round of 32 plays out today and tomorrow. What matchups are you guys watching either in this round or uh, looking forward to the Sweet 16 this weekend? Well, all our schools are alive, right? Yeah. I think we can That's say right. this in this, in this, in in this bracket, case. in this bracket. <laughs> yes, in this bracket. <laughs> Yeah, so that's exciting. And I, I think I think we have uh, Michigan, Tennessee is the closest, if not one of the two closest, at least in terms of uh, percentage chance of winning 
games. It's yeah, right I think around he, uh, that it's, and Georgia Tech are the two. Uh, Georgia Tech, West Virginia are the two closest um, second Kentucky, games. Kentucky, Iowa is predicted to be kind of a coin flip too. So while that Riverwalk region is is very top heavy, and in terms of uh, UConn and Baylor, the the cannon fodder in between. It's really competitive. <laughs> so that's nice. <laughs> but, you well, know, I... back to that, back to that, um, Troy, the Troy game, you know, first of all, the calls were egregious. Not only did you have what was the most clear as day over and back call that wasn't <laughs> called, you also had an and one where they didn't give her the basket, which would have essentially, you know, made it a one point game. And I was shocked to see, you know, it's, it's interesting that a 15 is still never beaten a two, in this tournament. Yeah, but a 16 has beaten a one in right. the women's tournament. But a 15's exactly. never beaten a two, which is yeah. just strange. And I actually, you know, I'm pulling for all the underdogs because I do think, well, from a f- objective fan perspective, I always like to see chaos if my bracket is destroyed and my bracket is always destroyed. <laughs> so I've reached that point um, in both tournaments. And I do think actually this tournament would benefit from a, a Cinderella run uh, by a team, whether it's BYU, whether it's uh, Wright State, any of the high seeds that have sort of made it to the next round. How about Belmont, uh, who or I, I want to watch Belmont How against... I forget Belmont? Well, Belmont <laughs> against Indiana. So Belmont upset Gonzaga, and I wanted to shout out Destiny Wells, a uh, freshman point guard who had an amazing game, uh, probably but like new favorite player, I guess, uh, <laughs> in, in the women's tournament. But she had 25 points. She had seven assists, and some of these assists were absolutely ridiculous, like no look behind the head, behind the back passes. Uh, and she had 32 points in the Ohio Valley Conference Tournament Championship game. So she uh, is is a young player kind of coming to, uh, into her own. And really, I, I just love the dynamic of, of that team together. They seem like they, they really have a lot of love uh, for each other as they were pulling off that upset over the Zags. Go Belmont. See, stars are made in March. Put put the women on TV and you're going you're gonna to see some stars there, see some amazing play. All right. Well, we can leave this here for now. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back to talk about all of our broken brackets. Turning to the side of the tournament that gets to use the March Madness trademark. They have at least earned it this year. A lot of favorites in the men's tournament have fallen hard and a full fourth of the teams in the Sweet 16 are double digit seats. That's happened only three times since the field expanded in 1985. But of course, the upset of upsets this year was Oral Roberts, a private Christian university in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Golden Eagles took down Ohio State and Florida to punch a ticket to the Sweet 16. The only other 15th seed to win multiple games in attorney was, of course, Florida Gulf Coast in 2013. On ESPN's first take, Stephen A. Smith talked about just how far Oral Roberts can go. These brothers can play. They can play. They beat Ohio State. And they beat Florida, and the, uh, the second six, number 15 seed to, we, to reach a sweet 16? Look, I got to give props where props are due. When we talk about Cinderella's, we got to talk about that because Cinderella's is what you expect of a March Madness. And here's the twist to all of this, Max. In the cold open, I brought up Duke, Kentucky, out of the mix. Usually when we think, so you think Cinderella stories, okay, it's going to be somebody that gets to the Final Four or even just the Sweet 16. We're perfectly fine with that, and that's it. Because the Blue Bloods, because the yeah. Blue Bloods of college basketball will show up onto the scene, at least one or two of them, and it's going to be a wrap. I'm sorry. We can't assume that this year. COVID-19, 
the, comp- the you know the complications it has caused. You know, one game got uh, you know got canceled, and I forgot who it was that gets advanced because there was no game played Saturday or, or Sunday rather. So I'm looking at it from that from that perspective. So there's the question of whether Oral Roberts can advance any further in the tournament, and there's also the question of whether this number of dramatic upsets are what we think of when we think Cinderella stories. First, Jeff, are the Golden Eagles the most impressive underdog in the tournament? Can they beat Arkansas? Well, I, well to answer your first question, I don't think they are the most. I think that's Loyola Chicago. I think Loyola Chicago is a real live team that can make the Final Four uh, again, which is remarkable that I'm saying the word again when I'm talking about Loyola Chicago in the Final Four. Um, but they are for real in terms of like serious contender. Um, in terms of Oral Roberts, it's a, certainly a surprise. I will say they do have that kind of they, they basically check every box. And I, and I thought this while watching Ohio State is of, of all the qualities you don't want in a team that's low, low seated that you are playing as a high seated team, um, meaning they take a lot of threes. They hit a lot of threes and they have a star in Max Asmus. Max Asmus, not spelled like Asmus at all, but. Yeah, they have. a, And we've seen this with teams with like, you know, a really transcendent star and and making a run on 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 March Madness. You know, CJ McAuliffe on the Lehigh team like comes to mind. Damian Lillard on Weber State. So certainly they can make some noise. And it was weird, too, because when you're a 15 seed and you beat a two seed, then your next game all of a sudden becomes easier, which is which is kind of funny. You're playing Florida, who just wasn't as good as Ohio State. So they beat Ohio State. Why can't they beat Florida? And that's certainly <laughs> what happened. Um, I do think Arkansas is tough, though. So I think that might I, I'm sort of guessing I could be wrong because I'm often wrong. Check the records. I, I do think that Arkansas is the end of the road for Oral Roberts. But it is impressive. I mean, to, to answer the question of whether they have been the most impressive. So if you go to Ken Pomeroy's ratings right now to his his rankings and you uh, he has like this color coding where he shows like if a team is still alive, they'll be like pink color coded. And so at the top, you know, you have the top four uh RIP Illinois, but then, you know, you have a a good number of the other kind of top 20 teams uh, in there. And then a few, you know, outside that Oregon State is number 50 right now. And then you have to scroll down all the way to number 128 in the country right now this reflects their their upsets uh, to find Oral Roberts, a team that during the, the regular season had lost to Missouri, Kansas City, North Dakota State, South Dakota State. Uh, they, they went through a stretch where, where they were losing to those teams, and yet somehow, and I think it goes to what you're saying, Jeff, they are a great shooting team uh, and just can kind of get hot at the right time. They're able to knock off teams that are ranked way higher than them. Uh, and so I think that easily has been the most surprising uh, Cinderella story so far. But yeah, I think it seems likely that the end of the road is is coming against Arkansas, who I grossly underestimated, by the way, uh, <laughs> RIP Colgate. They, Colgate was uh, doing well for a little while there. For about 17 minutes. <laughs> If that, I mean, Oral Roberts, Oral Roberts finished fourth in the Summit League. Yeah. Let's put that in perspective. Yeah. And he, they they did play Arkansas this year and lost. Although, sorry, I was looking at a headline from that and it said Arkansas needs second half rally to beat Oral Roberts. Yeah, so, it was kind of close. It was it was, it was only a nine point, uh, no, eleven point win. 
yeah. So, you know, anything can happen, right? I don't know. I like I like plucky teams. It's in fun. fact, they lost every game in the regular season against a tournament team. They lost to Missouri. They lost to Wichita State, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. They played a lot of tournament teams. That's they did. Good. And those weren't their only losses. As Neil well, mentioned. right. Right. Um, that's that's probably the bigger problem. <laughs> but, but look, you hit threes, you can beat anybody. That's just the truth in this game. Um and and they certainly have, and they hit their foul shots. That's the other big thing. I think they're best in the nation. In I think foul they're actually, shot yeah, literally the yeah. best free throw shooting yeah. team in the and country. That's big which is too. so. The, why those joke brackets? Yeah. yeah, yeah, those joke brackets where people were like, "Here's what the bracket would look like if the high, better free throw shooting team won every game," and then it had Oral Roberts winning the <laughs> national championship, and then it ended up being well, they called them getting to this point. I don't think it's going to be right. <laughs> completely right yeah absolutely but defensive efficiency they're 239th by ken palm that's not good that's even worse than iowa (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) i i appreciate that um okay well let's talk about the upsets more generally neil how how weird has this year been compared to others yeah, it's been pretty historically weird. It's not just, you know, a, a gut feeling that you have, but it's actually kind of uh, uh, borne out by the data. So what I did was I took our ELO ratings, which give like win probabilities going into each game. And I looked back going to the um, 1985, which was the expansion to the 64 team tournament. So I looked for games in which the the favorite or like the rate at which the favorite by ELO won. Uh, and this year, the favorite has in the in the round of 64 so the first round the true first round not the first four the favorite won 67.7 percent of the time that's the fourth lowest of any uh first round uh success rate for favorites in the 64 team era behind only 1989 2001 and 2013 i think going to your florida gulf coast uh factoid sarah uh in the second round this was uh so the favorite won only 62.5 percent of the time which was tied for the sixth worst success rate behind 2000, 1986, 1990, 94, and 99. But if you combine those two together in 47 games, so not 48, so we're discounting the walkover uh, Oregon VCU game that didn't get played. Uh, the favorite has won 31 times in 47 games, which is a success rate of sixty, uh, roughly 66%. That's the lowest for in the first two rounds for favorites in any tournament in the 64 team era, it beat out 1990, 1999 and 2001 where the favorite won uh, 66.7% of the time. So uh, this has been the most chaotic. And what's really interesting is the number of big upsets that have happened. Those have been historic in the first two rounds. So I look for games where uh, a 70% or better favorite lost. There have been nine upsets so far like that, uh, which tied 1990 for the most in the first two rounds of any tournament and uh, technically there were fewer games that saw that spread uh, this year so the uh, underdog has had the better success rate uh, of all time in 2021 also uh, there were six upsets of 80 plus percent favorites in the first two rounds which is also a record Uh, the favorite only in an 80 percent 80 plus percent favorite scenario they've only won 64.7 percent of their games in this tournament they're 11 for 17 so six uh, 80 plus percent upsets uh so far um so i think by a lot of different measures this has been the probably the most chaotic first two rounds of a tournament in modern history and that's by elo not by straight seeds not by the seeds right yeah. and so and so some of that could 
happen because of bad seeding too, right? Like if you're if you you know if a teams aren't aren't properly you know placed in the right places. There are Which we be noted yeah, did yeah. happen in a number of ways. Uh, and so, yeah, that could definitely be feeding into it. But typically you're not, you know, you're talking about those mattering at like the edges, not when it comes to like 80 plus percent uh, probability favorites uh, and, and still seeing so many of them lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I, I mean, it's like. It's good to know it's not just like it's not just my, my bracket. Like it's everybody's bracket, right? Like everyone is 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 this is weird for for really everyone. Is is it the pandemic that's that's made this tournament so volatile or is there something else going on here? Jeff, is this just what happens when Kentucky and Duke don't make it? It's chaos for everyone. Oh, I don't think it has anything to do with those two schools. <laughs> um but but I do think also this could completely normalize I think we could be here in a week and we could be looking at a final four that has Gonzaga, Alabama or Michigan, Baylor and Houston. And it's a completely normal, boring, chalky final four. And no one will really remember what happened in the guts of this bracket. That's certainly possible. I do think the seeding was off this year. I think the conference, both the Big Ten's utter failure and the <laughs> the ridiculous run of the Pac-12 sort of shows that, you know, maybe these sort of lack or lack or dearth of, of out-of-conference games had an impact in terms of weighing how strong the conferences were. I mean, clearly the committee was wrong on the Pac-12 with four Sweet 16 teams, including a six seed, a seven seed, a 12 seed in Oregon State, an 11 seed in UCLA. I mean, that speaks for itself. What? And they were wrong on Loyola Chicago. Uh, and, and, as Sarah and Loyola has pointed Chicago. Out. Yeah, I mean, Loyola Chicago. I mean, that Chicago, was a terrible seed they, they to, should have to been make a five. them an eight. To, they should have been a yeah. five. Um, at most, a six. And, and right. so that that was like probably the most egregious error. But I think maybe the way they play some of these power power uh, power conference teams as well. Well, why why has the Big Ten struggled so much? Or why did we think so much of them <laughs> maybe more than we should have is is it both of those things is that 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 they struggled and that we overrated them or is one more you know more i, I think they were overrated so a lot of those wins might have looked better you know because these teams were highly ranked um than they actually were but that being said i, I do think in a single elimination tournament you know crazy things can happen i don't want to read too much into it i think if ohio state plays a best of 7 with oral roberts they're going to win that best of 7 likewise you know iowa might win a best of 7 against oregon but you know in single elimination you're going to see a lot of this and we've seen this in the past with conferences just completely no showing it does i don't think it means the conference i mean, look it goes without saying that the Big Ten was clearly overrated this year, but I wouldn't read too much into it saying that all these teams were terrible and had no business being seated this high. They were good teams. Illinois got a terrible luck in a terrible draw by facing an eight seed in the second round that probably should have, as I said, should have been a five seed. Yeah, well, but I think there's also something to the the pandemic in the sense that it probably distorted you know, all of our expectations about every team and that, you know, if you make predictions like me uh, in particular off of the data, you did have a little bit more of a garbage in garbage out type of uh, problem this year compared with previous years. Like, oh, sure. Colgate looked good. 
they played 15 games against only five teams. Uh, you know, uh, so who cares if they had the the earmarks of a team that pulls off upsets? But I think probably the same thing applied to uh, to a lesser extent, but to some extent with the Big Ten, where they were far and away the best conference rated by Ken Palm during the uh, the regular season. You know, ahead of the Big 12, ahead of the Pac-12, and like pretty clearly ahead of them. And they did play some non-conference games, but at the same time, you know, you do have that sort of uh, you go into the season with kind of a pre-existing notion of how good these teams are, but you don't have as much of a way to kind of stress test that outside the conference. And these games are being played under really weird, untraditional circumstances, you know, without fans or without, you know, uh, abbreviated travel and like all these things. And so, and, and who, you know, some, some teams have had COVID pauses in the middle of the season. So it's sort of like, what is their true rating? Was it what they were? Baylor had a little bit of that problem. They've kind of overcome it so far, but sort of, you know, what is their true caliber of play? You have to answer those questions. Also, who racked up wins against teams that did have COVID problems? That's something that you don't really have going into the, um, the numbers also. So I think that more so this year than probably any other year in, in recent memory, you did have uh, some garbage in, garbage out when it comes to making predictions off of stats. Either that or I'm just making excuses. <laughs> the interesting thing, though, I was watching that Colgate-Arkansas game, and Colgate at one point in that first half was up by uh, almost like 15 or 20. I think it was like were 14 up, or 15, yeah they, were, yeah. they were up a lot. And the announcers are making an interesting point. Granted, this was one of the first games of the tournament, so they didn't know what lied ahead in terms of number of upsets, but that normally in the tournament when you have these sort of impartial crowds, they'll rally behind that 14 seed playing the three seed in a big way, and it'll really fuel um, fuel that team and at the same time put pressure on the high seed that's facing a huge upset in the first round. And yet without that crowd... They didn't. Arkansas didn't face that challenge, so he was predicting that maybe there'd be fewer upsets this year, which was obviously wrong. But I'm saying that the point being that there are some aspects of this COVID season that may be disadvantaging the the, the lower seeds too. Well, and all, and ma- making it just really chaotic and really hard to predict because of so many different variables that like we don't know anything about. Like, I, I someone asked me. Oh, did you make any allowances in your model for um, the lack of crowd noise? And I was like, how would... No, like, we don't have any information about that going into this season. Like, there's no precedent for that. So how could we model it? We have no idea what it would do to teams. I think, you know, this this whole pandemic year will give us a lot more data on a lot about a very specific thing. I don't know if it will ever come in handy again to know hope not. what is it like to not have fans. Um, yeah, I hope not, too. But, you know, I guess that'll it'll get us prepared if that ever happens again. All right. So Loyola, as an eight seed, has a pretty decent shot at the moment of making the final four. But what other underdog anyone you know, seated worse than eight could get to the final four. I don't hate UCLA, to be honest, if I'm looking at their path. I mean, they have a winnable game against Alabama, who I think Alabama is a good team and sort of a interesting team to potentially upset some of the other, you know, one seed types down the line, not looking at Michigan, but maybe looking at Michigan a little bit because it's like they literally only they're like James Harden, the college program, like they only take threes or shots at the basket or free throws. But still, UCLA has been really, uh, you know, impressive so far. Yes, they played Abilene Christian uh, for one of those games. But, you know, BYU is a good team. They took Gonzaga, really put them on the ropes in the conference tournament. Michigan State, tough team, uh, and and they were able to pull away there. So 
I think, you know, they have the best chance of any team currently double digit seeded to make the final four uh, right now. Uh, well, I mean, Jim Baham as a double digit seed has a imppeccable record. He's done this before <laughs> to take a double digit. He does digits. have a lot of practice at it, more and so than And he's coaching most. his son. He's coaching his son now. So, you know, if any year he's going to do it, I wouldn't be shocked, especially looking at their path ahead with Houston and then either Oregon State or Loyola, Chicago. I think Syracuse's best position to be that team, whereas even if Oral Roberts got past Arkansas, then they'd likely have to play Baylor or Villanova. Villanova looked great in their last game, uh, a team that's kind of, you know, a, a team that's won multiple championships in the last 10 years and has kind of been and is after- well coached and is very well coached and has kind of been an afterthought in this tournament. Based on bracket alone, I would say one of those two teams out of the Midwest, whether Syracuse or the aforementioned Loyola Chicago. Yeah, I, I you know, every I would I think I would be lower on Syracuse if Every team that faced them didn't look completely perplexed by their zone. <laughs> at some point, these guys I, run a zone. Like <laughs> what? At some point, I feel like this is known. <laughs> like, what are you? Do you really not prepare Wait for Wait a it? minute. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe that Houston is practicing its zone right now and is getting ready, um, practicing against a zone right now and is getting ready for that. Come on, guys. It's it's Syracuse. Let's let's figure it out. All right, I think we can leave this discussion here for now we'll take a quick break and be back for our rabbit hole of the week at 538 we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data some lead to stories some don't we end each week's show with one of those descents the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week what do you have for us neil yeah, I want to talk about a women's softball game that happened on Sunday that uh, probably had the most ridiculous stats of any game that I can think of in a single game. So, all right. Uh, it was Texas Tech uh, against Tarleton State. It was game one of a doubleheader. Uh, and in that game, Texas Tech won 23 to nothing. Uh, they had a 13-run inning in the, in the third inning. Uh, so those alone would have been like, wow, this is like a lot of stats happening in this game. In fact, it got mercy ruled. It only lasted five innings because a team was up so much that they had to, um, end the game. It was called the mercy rule in women's softball is by being up at least eight runs after five innings, they call the game. So they got that work, the 23 runs in pretty quickly in this game, but also on top of those numbers, there were some ridiculous individual stats in there. So Peyton Blythe hit a Grand Slam, one Grand Slam. However, uh, her teammate Carly Hamilton hit two Grand Slams in the same game. No, they were not in the same inning. It was not a <laughs> Fernando Tatis uh, senior situation. Not quite. They were one inning apart. So she hit her first one in the second inning. Then she hit her second one in the third inning. She had nine RBIs in the game. And so Blythe and Hamilton both had Grand Slams in the same inning. Two teammates had them. That was how you get to 13 runs in, in the third inning. So that also, in addition to the 23 nothing uh, and the mercy rule, you might think that would be enough for all of the accomplishments that happened in this game. However, also, Missy Zoak, the pitcher for Texas Tech, threw a no-hitter in this game <laughs> as, part of, as part of it. She had eight strikeouts, 
and the the no hitter ended because the catcher picked a runner off second base for the final out of the game that then completed the fifth inning for Tarleton State and the umpires were like we've seen enough uh, you know, stop it. They're already dead. Uh, and so uh, that was the end of the game. So in just to recap in this one softball game, yes, it was against Tarleton State, but you had a team went and put up 23 runs in five innings. The, uh, they won 23, nothing. One hitter hit two grand slams in one game and there was no hitter. So I want to ask you guys, have you heard of a game that had more like notable historical statistical achievements happen by so many like from so many different angles by so many different people all happening in the same game other than this does it count as a no-hitter or not it does uh because it was like officially they they stopped the game uh after five innings uh which is why they put the mercy rule at that point in the game to kind of give you okay you've done five innings and that that's an official game you tend to only think of you only hear about the no hitter, right? Like when the when the Yankees no hit the when David Wells no hit the Twins. I don't remember how many runs the Yankees scored. I assume a lot, like because they were playing the Twins. <laughs> but like I don't remember that. I only remember the no hitter. Yeah, you don't have to put a. I mean, if, if your pitcher is throwing no hitter, maybe you kind of you know take it a little easy on offense. You don't have to hit you know two grand slams in the same inning and score thirteen. I don't know. So the pitcher Rick Wise of the 1971 Philadelphia Phillies hit two homers in a game in which he also pitched a no-hitter against good. the Reds. So that, that's, that's got to be... That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah that's got to be one of the best, right? <laughs> I'm just hoping for one of those things, usually. Like, a Grand Slam would be great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll just take, I'd take, I'd take a Grand Slam any day of the week. <laughs> yeah, I don't need all the rest. I that's don't incredible. Need how, else. How, how good is that, is that softball team? Like, are they... Is it Was it a question so, of, like... The, the the disparity in in quality there or or well I mean clearly yes uh, Tarleton State is not a uh, you know a major college program but Texas Tech I mean they're like a good but not great Division one you know major conference Division one program they're I believe they're sixteen and ten on the season so it's like pretty good but they're not ranked in the top twenty five for instance um, so it's uh, that that was one of the first things I looked up too was like gosh, how good is Texas Tech? They must be dominant. It's like, they're actually like, you know, they're just sort of a, they're not run of the mill, but they're like, you know, closer to that than they are, you know, like the best team in the country. So imagine how bad, how badly if you got one of those top teams uh, against uh, Tarleton State, not to, you know, and I don't want to, to crap all over Tarleton State, you know, that it's not, not their fault that they they lost this badly. Uh, and nobody wants to give up this many Grand Slams in a game while also no. being no hit. Yeah, no one's going for Wait, that. Wait, and no. they played another game after that? Am I reading yeah, this that's, correctly? Yeah, it was only game one of the doubleheader. <laughs> oh, so in the second game, they took <laughs> it a little easier and they, they beat Tarleton State 9-1. to one. They did not beat them 23 to nothing. <laughs> what does the coach say in between those games? Well... We gave up multiple grand slams, <laughs> 20 plus runs, and we didn't get a hit. So let's try to do better this time. You know, the only way to go, the only place to go is up. You know, that's true. <laughs> and they did. Man, I remember playing softball as a kid on some brutally bad teams and just standing in the infield. 
just wishing I were anywhere else as the balls just like went past us all or that pitcher was, you know, throwing to the backstop and oh, it was brutal. Softball, man. <laughs> it's It can be really bad when it's bad. <laughs> it can be bad. Thank God for the mercy rule, right? Yeah, right. I know. Why didn't they have that when I was eight? <laughs> it would have oh, wait, they didn't? Useful. They I don't didn't? think so. We just played for an hour and then got orange slices afterwards, you know? It was a long high, hour, though. Drink your high C. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. That helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Metlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.